Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a TV broadcaster, entrepreneur, author, and the podcast host of The Rounding the Bases. It's Joel Goldberg. How are you doing today, Joel? I'm doing well. How are you, Alex? I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about all about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do first is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, I grew up outside of uh, Philadelphia till I was 13. Uh, loved every sport. Wasn't particularly good at any of them. But I, my best sport was soccer, but I loved baseball, football, basketball, hockey as a fan. Um, I played a lot of baseball, some basketball. And then, as I mentioned, soccer. Family moved from St. Or not St. Louis. I ended up in St. Louis at one point, your, your place. But uh, moved from Philadelphia to Chicago when I was 13. My, do- my dad had a job transfer. And um, so went to eighth grade in high school there. Had a dream at that point and even before my younger years of being on TV, being a broadcaster. I knew at a pretty early age that I was not good enough to play at a higher level. And so I also knew that I love to talk about it, uh, about sports. And so that was my dream. I followed it. And 26 years in, I'm, I'm still in the, in the broadcasting world. With playing sports, were you more about just having fun with it and not having that competitive side in you? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I think it's a, in some ways, it's hard to say because, you know, when you're talking at that young level, it's like, what is, you know, you're, you're, you want to win, you want to score goals, you want to, you know, you, you want to hit home runs and, and, you know, you like the orange slices at halftime or after the game too. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not as serious stuff. You know, you get to the high school level. I, I played high school soccer. It becomes a little bit more serious, but I, I was never a guy that was going to go to another level. So I don't know that I had the the same drive that some of those elite athletes did. So either I was not at their level because I didn't have the same drive as them, or I was not at their level. And because of that, I didn't have the same drive, whatever, whichever one it was, I, I knew that I was never going to be labeled as an elite athlete, uh, but sports were everything to me. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a balance of what you're talking about. Yeah. I wanted to win. Yes. It was serious, but I just loved being there. I love being in the middle of it. And, and, you know, all these years later, I'm still in the middle of it. It's my life. I love, I love every element of it. So, you know, I, I think it was sort of a combination of things, but for me, more than just wanting to win, maybe I wasn't as hungry as some others and uh, as intense as others. Uh, of course I wanted to win, but I, I think that there was just something about being in the sports environment that I always loved. When you were transitioning locations, was it hard to leave the past behind you or were you ready to make that new start and try something new being in a new location? Well, I mean, in terms of, first off, from a professional standpoint, I've moved a ton and and that just becomes a way of life. And so, you know, from a broadcast standpoint, every step along the way was the next step. As a kid moving from Philadelphia to Chicago, that was... I actually was thinking about this recently. I don't, I don't know why, because I don't, I don't remember the emotions I had. The only emotion that I remember, it's a weird one, is maybe it's not weird, but I just remember walking into eighth grade the first day, and in my mind, we had just moved to Chicago five days before school started. Maybe it was three, maybe it was seven. I don't know, 
but we didn't live in a neighborhood where there were a hundred kids on the street, which is what I did in South Jersey, outside of Philadelphia. You know, it was an older neighborhood. So I, we weren't moving in and suddenly meeting all these kids that were going to say, Hey, you know, look, you know, you can, you can come to school with us on Monday. So I just, the only emotion I remember is, is walking in that first day to, you know, we'd gone to a, um, we had gone to a orientation. So I remember like, I, I saw the school, I saw all these kids, but I didn't know who any of them were. And so, you know, I couldn't have been more scared walking in as an eighth grader the first day to a homeroom class where I literally knew no one. That's the only emotion I remember. I, I suspect that I have to ask my parents that I probably wasn't too fond of the move because I'd spent the first 13 years of my life in, in one place and had my friends and, and look, life on the East coast is different than life in the Midwest. Not that I understood it at that level. All my friends out in the Philadelphia area were what they didn't hear Chicago. They heard Illinois. So they were giving me a hard time about moving out to a farm and cows and all this type of stuff, which is funny because we didn't even live in Philadelphia. We lived in New Jersey. You could say the same thing both ways, but I just, you know, I, I, I suspect it was probably a pretty traumatic time, but kids at that age are pretty resilient for the most part. And, and, you know, within two days, three days a week, suddenly you have all your new friends and you settle in and, and I've been a Midwesterner now for, uh, 36 years, I think. You talked about being scared of when you were going into that school. When you're now moving for a job, are you more open and not afraid? Or do you go into any of those new jobs and you're very vocal or you're very outgoing now? A little bit of both. I mean, first off, I would say I've been in Kansas City now for 13 years and I don't really have any intention of going anywhere. So that mindset has changed in a sense that, look, if you if you were to pick me up tomorrow and drop me into another city, I'd be very confident in myself and I'd be more concerned about my family and my kids and uprooting them. I, I believe that I've been around long enough and worked in enough situations even outside of Kansas City where you suddenly jump in, you're announcing a college game or something, and I don't do a lot of that, and you have a new partner that you've never met or worked with and a new producer you've never worked with, or, or even now, you know, I, I do generally around 160 or whatever our schedule has this year it's 161 Royals games and I have a new producer uh, I host the pre and post game show every single one so 161 times two is what 322 shows I'll do this summer I have the same uh, I have the same analyst the same broadcast partner he and I could do the shows in our sleep um, I have if, if, if he and I show up and don't get a chance to talk before a show one sentence to each other one word will be fine because we have that connectivity kind of like a you know a point guard that has that feel for for his center and they just have that that synergy but to get to what you're saying a little bit i have a new producer that's starting with us this year and i think it'll be our fifth producer in 14 years our job is one where every few years they kind of move on to something else in that role and I think that when I was younger, or even in my early years in Kansas City, I'd be a little bit nervous about, you know, am I going to like this guy? Um, is he going to be good? Is he going to be bad? How does he communicate? How, how much does he know? How little does he know? And I just have this confidence. I just met with him recently for the first time. He was looking for houses in town, and so he went for coffee. So, okay, I know he's a good guy. Um, and I think he's probably going to be really good. But if he's not great, I, I really think he will be. I know how to make that work. So there's, 
the further you get along in your career, those moves or those changes, whether they be in location or personnel, just don't rattle you as much because you've been through it all before. So, you know, my first job was in a small market. I get to my second job uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, and it was actually a TV station I'd interned at in college. So I had a comfort level there, but I was still the youngest guy. Uh, I didn't have a lot of airtime. I was trying to prove myself. And I go to St. Louis and it's sort of the same thing. Like I'm the low man on the totem pole. Nobody knows me here. Uh, there's some nerves with that. I go to Kansas City in 2008, a little bit of nerves with that too, because it was new. But I just, you know, now having done pre and post game shows and in-game reporting as the only guy that, that does it here for 13 seasons, I just, I feel like there's really nothing that I haven't seen. And now I say that in a way of, we'll show up for a baseball game on any given night or most nights and we'll see something we've never seen before in terms of a play or something that, uh, you know, a weird call or who knows that'll make you scratch your head. Uh, and that's fun. But in terms of the way it all works, uncertainty, nerves, I don't, I don't have any nerves getting on television anymore because I just have a lot of confidence in myself, which I didn't always and so that kind of goes back to your whole question. When you start moving around or you're trying something new, I think when you've been around long enough, you just you just trust yourself and you trust that you know how to handle things. As you were finding the new passion in doing TV and talking, was there anyone that inspired you in that industry? Everybody in some ways. I know that that's a little bit of an easy out for me, but and I I think in some ways I understood this when I was younger. I mean, I just was always trying to soak up knowledge. So I always believed, and we live in a society and certainly on television of you, you, you can't show weakness. You can't be vulnerable. You, you have to know everything because it's such a cutthroat business. And I was just never really that way. I mean, there's certainly some times where I was trying to fake it a little bit, but I was always of the belief and still am, by the way, to this day, that why wouldn't you ask people that know more than you? their advice on things. And so even if I look back to when I left uh, St. Louis, somewhere along the way, uh, Fox Sports Midwest, which is my employer here with Fox Sports Kansas City, uh, soon to be Bally Sports, but the same people, uh, they had me coming in and, and doing some sideline reporting for blues. And they'd have me travel the blues a little bit. And, you know, I'm doing seven, eight, 10 games a year with them. I'm not at the practices. I'm not around every single day. So I remember I would, before a game, you know, we're in Montreal or we're in Calgary or uh, wherever it was, uh, Denver, where I would, uh, I would pull aside Darren Pang, their, you know, color commentator and say, if you were me, what would you ask Alex Petrangelo before the game? And I didn't view that as a sign of weakness. I viewed that as the fact that I'm working with someone that knows more than I do. And, and I've got a chance to maybe get better. So I don't know if that's answering the question, but I just always believe that, that everyone you come into contact with can be someone that can inspire you, that you can learn from. And there, there certainly were some uh, people along the way at every step that I went that just were, were mentor types to me, uh, you know, really every stop. And, but I, I think, and I've learned this over the years, the general manager of the Kansas City Royals, who got here in Kansas City in 2006, I got here in 2008, 
Um, you know, and he's the guy that's credited for being the architect of, of bringing them the first world championship in 30 years. One of the longest tenured GMs. He's, he can pretty much do anything he wants here in this town. I mean, he's, um, that's a long time to be somewhere. And he said to me recently, he actually said it when we were talking about my book and, and, and I was interviewing him for that. He said that he, he finds inspiration from, he tries to find inspiration from anyone he comes into contact with. He says, cause I mean, he's one of the highest level people in the organization and you know, there aren't a whole lot of people above him outside of the owner and the president, that type of stuff. And he says, I, I may take inspiration from the parking lot attendant that greets me with so much excitement and enthusiasm and a smile on their face that it reminds me that I got to treat people that way, that I got to remember to stop and slow down and say hi to people. And so I think that when you're paying attention, you find in, inspiration and mentorship everywhere that you go. Certainly, I had people along the way that just said certain things to me, you know, be genuine and authentic with what you do in a, in a television world that could be so fake. Um, you know, build relationships, all those type of things. But um, there's not one specific person. My parents raised me the right way and and raised me to work hard and treat people right. That that it obviously starts there. It almost always does with most people. But I, I to this day, I'm still just trying to see who who can I learn from today. That that's that's the biggest thing to me. I think I love when you say that because I use that same motto today. Where anytime I'm talking to someone, my goal is to try to learn at least one thing from them. Yeah. with any interview I do on here. I always can take something and utilize it in my daily life. And if I grab even more, it makes it even better. But mm -hmm. I think you talked about asking questions. And I think it's always come up where people are afraid to ask. And I think people just got to be upfront and open and just ask the questions because you might regret not asking and getting an answer instead of making a decision where it could go completely the opposite way. Well, we're, you know, we're proud, we're, we're prideful, we're afraid of being judged uh, until we're not. There's a, there's a reason why older people have no filter. They just don't care anymore. I don't care. You know, I'm not worried about that type of stuff, but there's, you know, we all need a filter, but I, I think there's something to be said about being willing to ask and being willing to speak up. And, you know, I, I, I also think that when you ask people for advice in a genuine way, that they respect you for it. That again, everybody has this macho. It's not always even macho. It's just, you know, it's, you're afraid to show weakness because what if that makes people think you're not good enough? All, you know, and you get in your own head. I mean, we all tell ourselves stories in our heads that aren't true. And I just have found that the, the highest level of connections that I've had with athletes um, and, and with anyone for that matter, generally comes with me saying, Hey, I don't know this. Or, or what do you think about this? Whether it's respecting and asking for people's advice or their opinions, um, people feel good when you, when you respect their knowledge. And, and, and to me, that's a much deeper level than what a lot of others will do. When you can, when you can basically say, look, I'm putting my ego aside because I want to hear your opinion or I'd like your help. That, that generally tends to lead to good things beyond just what you learn from it. It generally helps to build a good relationship too. As you're getting older and pursuing college or education, where were, where were you taking yourself? Did you know exactly what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, no, I always knew. I mean, the only thing I would say to that, Alex, is I didn't know exactly what it would look like. And 
you know, look, someone coming out of college nowadays doesn't know what the world will look like in 20 years or whatever the number is, right? I mean, uh, I'll put it this way. When I graduated from college, email was new. Cell phones were there, but they were like, they came in like a small travel suitcase almost. <laughs> um, uh, websites were brand new. Nobody really had much of a website. If, if you did, it was some sort of a landing page. Uh, you know, my first job, I was, most of the stories I got were via a fax machine and then you'd get stuff like press releases that way. So my point is, is that I knew what I wanted to do, but I couldn't have ever envisioned wanting to be a pregame and postgame show host. That, that, that job didn't exist. You know, we didn't have, we had cable, but we didn't have obviously streaming services or you know, direct TV or things like that. It was pretty limited. And so what I knew I wanted to do was, I mean, there were two routes. Either I was going to go and try to be a play-by-play guy or I was going to go and be the sports guy on the news. And, you know, you're in St. Louis. Uh, a lot of the guys, the main guys that are either on the news or doing the sports are guys that I worked with or competed against uh, way back then. And that was the main job. Like, that's what most people did. You didn't, you know, you didn't have a social media person or someone that could get in front of the camera and do Snapchat or Instagram Live or Facebook Live. None of that existed. So I knew that I either wanted to go play by play or I wanted to be um, some version of either the host, the, the the anchor on Sports Center, which was everything back then. It's still something. But I mean, back in that day, uh, everybody wanted to be Chris Berman or Dan Patrick or Keith Olbermann. Um, or, or later on, Stuart Scott and Craig Kilborn, and, and, and those were a lot of my heroes. Or uh, growing up in Chicago, uh, the main anchor there was a guy named Mark Jean Greco. Or, um, or, or in Philadelphia, there was a guy named Don Tollefson, and I watched all those guys growing up. That's what I wanted to be, or play by play. And, and I, at Wisconsin, had two years worth. I wasn't supposed to. They just kept me coming back. Um, four semesters worth of being an intern at the NBC television station there. So all of my background as a, a teenager and an early 20 something was in going out in the field and sometimes just holding the microphone or asking questions or uh, coming back and, and they would have the trust in me over time to edit, you know, 20 or 30 seconds of highlights from a game that night. So all of my prep work and background was on the television news side. So that's the route I went. And that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't know anything else. So I could not have told you that, hey, one day you're going to be the pregame and postgame show host for the Kansas City Royals. Because I didn't know such a thing like that existed because it didn't. When you did that internship, as you were getting involved in different tasks, were you enjoying it every single second? Or were there some things that were challenging to you that you didn't know was going to happen? I don't know. I don't know if I knew a whole lot of anything. <laughs> I, I mean, but that's true for most of us too. I mean, like, you know what you know, and for the most part, you don't know a lot at that age, right? So I don't know if I'm answering that, but right. But I, I just, there were a lot of things I had no clue about. I just knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and what I wanted to do was be on TV and talk about, not in a way of like, oh, that'd be so cool to be on TV. I'm going to be a superstar, that type of thing. I mean, there's a little bit of element of being like being the guy, 
but I just want to talk about sports. That's what I loved. And um, I just didn't know all that went into it. As you're taking that next step post-college, what were you focusing on? I know you talked about that. Your main goal was just to get on TV, mm-hmm. talk about sports. But was the first stepping stone that path that you wanted to take right away? Or did you kind of make some detours to eventually get to where you want? Here's one thing I did know, Alex. I knew from just the people I'd talked to, uh, people that I interned with that got jobs out of college that were, you know, guys that were a year older than me, uh, that, you know, I was able to, and again, we're not texting or cell phones back then, but, you know, I, I don't remember. I suppose we were picking up a landline and calling each other, or I, I don't, I don't know, but I was able to see where they were going and what I was able to see from them and others that gave me advice was there's a good chance that if you get into this, if you're lucky enough to get into it, you're going to be somewhere small. You're going to be in a small town. So I was, I, I, my first job was in a a small city in Northern Wisconsin named Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Um, Anybody that is checking out this podcast, if they've ever vacationed up in Northern Wisconsin, they call it the Northwoods up there has heard of it. They might've even watched the TV station up there and maybe laughed at times at, you know, how, uh, how green everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were on TV. So I knew that it was going to have to be a small start with no money. And I did know this, like I, I very, very genuinely know or genuinely believed that I was willing to go anywhere in the country to live up my dream. So that right off the bat is that rules out a lot of people. I mean, I went to school with a lot of people that I think were probably more talented than me, but they had no desire to go do that. And instead of taking, you know, the, the low paying job in the small market, they went into marketing or PR or whatever else that they did. And they probably made two to three times the amount of money that I did. And they lived in, Milwaukee or Chicago or wherever it was. And, and I'm, you know, living in a town of 7,800 people and, and, you know, I'm covering basically high school sports, outdoor sports, ice fishing. I don't know, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, to answer the question, there were, there were moments where I'm like, it was never, what am I doing? It was just like, when, when do I make the next step? And it took me two years, but you know, there were points where I, I would see people that came and worked there and then they moved on quicker than I did. And you start, and then I'd get passed over a promotion or something like that. You know, I'm the sports reporter on the weekend anchor and now the main sports job is open and they hire somebody else. And you start to question yourself a little bit. But I think that the, the surprises along the way were, were not being underpaid or working in the small markets. I think the surprises were just, you know, the amount of failure you had to deal with, the amount of uncertainty, the amount of lack, the lack of confidence that you sit there and you look at others and you say, they make it look so much easier. Like, how does this guy get in front of the camera without a script and just talk? And I can't even remember beyond three words. You know, now I look back at that and people say that about me. Like, well, how do you just get up there and do that? Well, I have experience and I'm comfortable and all that. So I think that, that you know, the the surprises for me were not the sacrifice in the small towns. I, mean, I, I, I truly was willing to go anywhere if it got me on TV. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that 
that up in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, it was about, uh, I'd say 350 miles from my parents' house. So, uh, you know, I, I felt like I was still close to family and, you know, able to, to drive five and a half hours if I needed to, to get there. So, um, you know, I could have been in Alaska or, uh, you know, Alabama or who knows what. And, um, I ended up there. You talked about getting lack of confidence or not getting that promotion. How did you use that and turn it into a positive? It's a great question. And I don't know if I remember how, what I would say is there weren't a lot of moments where I don't know that I ever thought about quitting. There are just are moments that I doubted myself, but I really believe that it's not that I didn't, it's not that I, I mean, I, I didn't really have a backup plan, but I knew I could find one, you know, I, I mean, I, I worked for four years in high school and then four years when I was home from college at a local restaurant in Chicago, shoot, they offered me, they offered me twice, twice my entry-level broadcast salary to manage the place. I could have gone back there and done that. I, it did that. Maybe that scared me a little bit. Uh, I think there was just a fear though, of, of giving up on my dream. So for sure, there were moments where I doubted myself. There were moments, I mean, I was, I was passed over in almost every stop I was at for a promotion where they went with someone else and that'll mess with your head. And, you know, I mean, I can very vividly remember being upset on some of those and, and, and you know, ready to move on. But I don't remember ever, ever having a thought in my head of maybe I should quit and just do something else. There were moments where you wonder whether you're good enough. There were moments where you say, well, if they keep passing me over, what are they missing or what am I missing? Or maybe I'm not as good as this person or that person, which is so, so self-destructive to, to sit there and compare yourself to others. We all do it, but in, in, you know, in the media business, it's so subjective. It's, it's very easy to, to, um, to get in your own head. But I, I just think that I just kept showing up, you know, I kept treating people right. I kept, uh, I, I, I always was and, and still am a hard worker. So I always prided myself on, on just trying to outwork people, maybe not outwork people, but always make sure that I wasn't the, you know, the, 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 the squeaky wheel, so to speak, you know, I didn't want to be the guy that was letting others down and I'm still that way today. So I think there were moments that I really did question myself and lacked confidence, but I just kept coming back to you talk about how did you get through it? Um, coming back to, well, this, but this is my dream. This is the only thing I ever wanted to do. And so that was always enough. You know, I think it's like, if the, if the, if the fuel in the tank was close to empty, cause you're just defeated, there was always enough to, you know, to just push forward because it's like, man, this is all I ever wanted to do. I, I can't give up on this now. Maybe I just need to find a different station or a different city. And, um, you know, and that's a, that's a tough thing too. Cause you're always looking for the next step. Okay. I got here. Now what's next. Now what's next. It's a little bit unsettling. Okay. When this contract's up, what do I have to do? And I will say, and I'm skipping forward, but we can go back that it's nice when you finally find the place where you're like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And you stop thinking about those things. And then you stop doubting yourself and you don't worry about the confidence. You're like, 
this is where I want to be. I want to be here. They seem to want me here and they keep wanting me back and I keep wanting to be back. So, Hey, I don't need to worry about that. I can just go do my thing. And I think that's true for a lot of people in television, radio, but almost in any profession, when you're young, you, you worry about whether what people think and you worry about whether you're good enough. And that, that can be pretty debilitating. I think the hardest part is when you get that rejection letter or something, but there's Ugh. no context to it. And you, I always know when I've gotten those, it's like, what could I have done better? And I think that is, like you said, the self-destruction kind of, where you're thinking and you're doubting yourself. But I kind of use that as motivation to, I'm going to eventually get there. Maybe I'm just taking a longer path, but nothing's going to stop me. And I always say it's, there's the power of rejection in a way. Yeah. And, and I think the other, along with that, I agree with you is it becomes easier to handle that. It's never easy to handle rejection. I, I think maybe you get better at it over time because we're all going to get rejected. But if you can, if you can step back and just recognize that it's all part of the journey, much easier said than done. But I mean, I look back and, you know, it worked out. And I'm not saying it always works out. It didn't always work out, but it worked out ultimately where I got to. And so now I try to just enjoy those moments and they're not all good. They're not, all, but you know, things don't always go, go the way you want. Um, I wrote a chapter in the book about hitting the curveball, and, and, you know, I use that metaphorically, uh, although the best baseball hitters can hit the curveball, and, and, and they know how to foul those pitches off. And so, you know, sometimes the days and the events and the rejections, um, are, are difficult and things don't go as planned, but, but I, I think, you know, in baseball terms, if you foul that pitch off, you live to go another day. And that's probably a little bit over overly dramatic, but I mean, we all deal with that every single day in some form or another. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't remember the number, but 1994, summer of 1994, I'm, I'm guessing I have, I don't know if I saved any of them, but 20, 25 rejection letters from TV stations all across the country that, that said, no, no, no. And I, Again, I don't, I think you're right. I don't know if they told me what they didn't like. They just basically told me no. When did you get your first big break in sports? What station, what job opportunity was that? Well, I, to me, I think it's, it's three breaks, I guess. But I, I mean, to me, the one that I love to reflect upon is the first one. And while that first TV job, and I know that, you know, the times have changed now since 2021, not 1994, but uh, that first TV job was $13,500 a year. And, you know, I had to move out of my first place because the rent at $300 a month was too much. So I moved in with, uh, with another guy, got a roommate. It was a two bedroom for $340 a month. It was only 170 bucks a month. But that still was the big break because I got in the door. And I got in the door this way. This is where I'll put on my motivational hat because it's a message I believe that applies. I tell it to every audience. Uh, I'm a motivational speaker now too, but um, it's one that I tell young kids wanting to, to go into broadcasting, but I think it applies to any profession. It, it, it's simply put this way. What makes you different or better than anyone else? Because for the most part, no matter what we do, there are plenty of others out there. And you may feel like you're better, but there are thousands of other Alex's out there. There are thousands of other Joel's out there. And, you know, 
not everybody has the skills of a Michael Jordan or a Wayne Gretzky or a Kobe Bryant or, a, you know, you name it, you know, uh, you know, Bob Costas, uh, whatever, you know, the, the, the greatest of the, the greats. Most of us are, are, hopefully we're good, but you know, those guys, the Joe Bucks of the world, they're at a level that most of us can't compare ourselves to. And so what makes you different? So I'm getting all those rejection letters in 1994 and I'm, I'm freaking out. Like I, I can't get a job. And I get over again, remember no internet. So I had some phone service. I had probably cost me 30 or 40 bucks a month, which felt like a lot. And you call in this 800 number every day, you know, no cell phones, landline. And if it was a, uh, it was a long distance number that would cost money too. You couldn't do that. So 800 number and you had a special code that was assigned to you. And, and every day it would list any new job opening on a, in a TV station. So, you know, to learn about the job opening in Peoria, Illinois, press one. Okay. Get the address, get the contact, ship it off. And everyone came back with a rejection letter. So, you know, I'm ready to maybe give up. And I don't know if anybody told me to do this or what happened, but I started calling up TV stations around the country. And the conversation would go this way every single time. Well, first I'd call and I would ask the receptionist, can you tell me the name of, of the news director? Um, sure, it's Dave Smith. Click, call back 10 minutes later. Like as if they wouldn't remember my voice in 10 minutes or if they even cared. But in my mind, it's like, give it 10 minutes. Hi, can I speak with Dave Smith? Sure. Hi, Mr. Smith. My name is Joel Goldberg. I just graduated from the University of Wisconsin. I'm looking for a television job. I understand you don't have an opening right now. But I was just curious, I'm going to be passing through Terre Haute next Wednesday or Thursday. Um, would you be in? And if so, could I pop in and, and meet you and, and drop off a tape? Well, sure, I'll be there next Wednesday. Oh, good. What's a good time for you? One o'clock. Oh, that's great. I, that's when I was going to be there. I'll see you then. Click. Guess I'm going to Terre Haute. And I did this all over the country. And so once I got a yeah, I was never going to Terre Haute. But once I got a, a yes, I'm driving to Terre Haute and Peoria, Illinois and Rochester, Minnesota and Rochester, New York and Rhinelander, Wisconsin and Wausau, Wisconsin and Quincy, Illinois and Jeff City, Missouri and, um, you know, smaller markets. And suddenly I had this database of like 25 news directors and I could follow up with thank you notes and check in. And within a couple of months after I get my job in Rhinelander and then suddenly in the next couple of months, two or three more offers came in. I wasn't better than anyone else. I differentiated myself and I put myself to the front of the line or the top of the resume tape pile. That was the break because if that doesn't happen, I'm working at the hot dog stand in Chicago. That was like just networking before the internet yes. networking in a way. And I didn't know it. I mean, it was like a survival thing. It was like, it was desperation, but it was, and I really wish to this day that I could sit there and say, so-and-so taught me to do that. And I tell everybody this too. Because it's very easy when you listen to that message to say, yeah, but I'm not really comfortable cold calling. I'm not really, I hate cold calling, Alex. I am not comfortable with it at all. For the people that are good at that, my hat's off to them. But I'm not comfortable with it. Even to this day, uh, it's still weird to me. But I was like, this was it. It was, this was the last ditch effort. And, and then you start getting a little momentum and you say, wait a minute. They said, yes, they'll meet with me. There's no rejection anymore. I might not get the job, but they're willing to say yes. So yes, it was the highest level of networking. And you know, to finish that story, 
I remember telling my nephew that a few years ago. I don't know what we were talking about, if it was television or jobs or life or whatever. And, and he was in college and I told him that he said, yeah, but nowadays we have LinkedIn. I said, true. So does everybody else. What differentiates you? Yeah. Everybody has the same stuff. You just have, nowadays you have stuff that's more evolved and makes things easier. doesn't make you better than the next person though. So. I think that's so true. Like you see all the thousands of po or profiles, but it's like, how do you stand yourself out in a way? And I yeah. think it shows that you did that by making those calls and getting that meeting with not knowing what was going to happen on the other side of that phone call. It's funny too. Like, I don't really remember the names. I think I have it down in my basement. Cause I think my mom sent it to me, but I'd love to find it again. I really should, but I, it could take days to find. I have the I have the binder that I kept all those notes in. And I would just have, you know, there's no iPads or tablets or <laughs> Apple pencils or whatever, right? And or, or a notes section in your phone. And, and I just would have a page on every TV station. Name of the TV station. I wrote about this a little bit in the book, but uh, name of the TV station, name of the news director, name of every person I met there, you know, Heather was the, uh, was the meteorologist and, you know, and Martin was the sports guy and Al was the news director. And I just, I had these meticulous notes and, and on, on June 17th, I sent a thank you note. And on June 30th, I reached out and this is what they said. And I don't really remember a whole lot of the names, but you know, to this day, I, not only do I remember the name of the guy that hired me in Rhinelander, we're still friends. There, there are four of us that are on a, on a um, text chain together on an almost daily basis. The one guy was the sports director there at my TV station in Rhinelander. He has been the main sports anchor in St. Louis on the Fox affiliate for 25 years. Wow. I wasn't always the main guy. Um, the second guy was our weekend sports anchor. He's been the main sports guy at the NBC TV station in Milwaukee forever. The guy that hired me now lives in Louisiana and he does some television and I think some teaching or professor or something like that. Um, I, I'm messing up his title and me. So like the four of us were, were kind of like a little bit of a rat pack back then. And, uh, and we're all still in it. And so, you know, he's the guy that hired me. He's the one that I, I, I remember getting to that town and, I had time to kill. So I went to this park near the TV station, which is one that I ended up covering like a lot of softball games and events in town there. And I sat on a picnic bench. So this would have been like mm, July of 94 with a book and a notebook. And I was studying fantasy football, getting ready for a draft in August. That's how I killed my time. And, uh, and then I went and visited the TV station and two months later, they hired me. Wow. Yeah. So after Rylander, what was next for you? That's when I went back to Madison and you know, that one, again, I don't know that I knew it was networking, but you know, I'd spent four semesters and two years proving myself to, to the guys there. And, um, and so they had three people on their sports staff, which is nobody has that anymore, but NBC TV station, and they wanted to hire a sports producer. They'd never had a producer before. I think it was just all the people on, on the air. And I was a little bit hesitant about taking a producer job because I wanted to be on camera. And I didn't want to lose that momentum. But what they did say was that you're going to mostly produce. However, you'll get some airtime, cover some high school sports. 
uh, you, you will be our fourth on-air person. So it was a foot in the door and I took that and then I moved up from the number four guy to the number three guy. And that was great because now suddenly you're covering, you know, Big Ten football, Big Ten basketball. Uh, you might drive to Green Bay for a home game on a weekend and, and go cover the Packers and then a lot of high school sports. And um, so that was 1996 to 1998. And, um, and then I got the opportunity in St. Louis after that. And that was really one of the big breaks because now suddenly you're in a city with a major league baseball team an NFL team an NHL team. And now suddenly you're on the big stage. Working in St. Louis, what's the biggest thing you learned about yourself? Um, I don't know. You know, it took me a while to, learn it but I, I think probably the biggest thing I learned over time was yeah because that was really the first time that I was regularly being exposed to superstars I mean it's one thing to deal with and, and look when I was at Wisconsin as a student and then as a broadcaster there was some major talent coming through there in terms of Big Ten basketball you know we see nowadays Chris Weber and Jalen Rose on TV and Juwan Howard coaching Michigan. I mean, I, I saw those guys playing basketball and, uh, but there's something different when it's a professional, you know? And so now I'm in St. Louis and, you know, you're dealing with Mark McGuire and then Albert Pujols and, and, and you're dealing with um, Chris Pronger and Al McInnes and, and, Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk. And, and I think that, you know, what I learned, maybe not so much about myself, but just about those athletes over time is that they're human beings. They're normal guys too. They're, they're, they're normal guys in, in extremely high demand. And it took me a long time, but once I understood that I didn't have to be on the same level with them athletically, but I needed, I needed to be on the same level with them from a, a human standpoint. And when I stopped putting them on pedestals and started just having normal person conversations like you and I are here versus ooing and eyeing, then suddenly you come to have more confidence, I think, and understand that, you know, this is all about relationships. And so you know, I don't know if it's so much about what I learned about myself other than, you know, just continuing to be resilient, continuing to work hard, continuing to, uh, to take everything seriously too, and, and also not too seriously. But, you know, I got as much joy in covering high school sports there as I did covering NFL. Now, obviously, covering a Rams Super Bowl or two Rams Super Bowls and, and one you know, Super Bowl championship and covering two World Series and covering countless hockey game, playoff hockey games and traveling and all that. There's nothing that beats that. But, you know, there was kind of a fun innocence, too, of walking into a high school gym and we, we had a very robust prep coverage. And, you know, I, I could walk into a gym feeling like a 20, I don't know, seven-year-old superstar walking into a gym in the student section at – Shamanad or wherever is like chanting my name because they see me walking in with a I'm, I'm I'm well in St. Louis I wasn't the cameraman so I'm I'm just walking in as a reporter with the cameraman next to me and they're all chanting my name and um you know so I, I think I just I don't know I, I learned that you know you become really very much a part of a community 
and um, and that people watch and people rely on you. And so it was it was a great, you know, it was nine and a half years there. Um, my I got married while I was in St. Louis, not in St. Louis, but um, had both of my kids in St. Louis. So, you know, it was a it was a, a, a highly um, memorable and influential time in my life. During that time in St. Louis, what pro- moment of St. Louis sports was your favorite to cover? Um, that's a good one. I mean, you know, the obvious, uh, you know, is is the Rams winning the Super Bowl on, uh, you know, on the last play, the the um, the tackle uh, against the Tennessee Titans, '99 season, you know, uh, early early, what a, I guess it would have been late January, early February, 2000, um, or, yeah, 2000, but 99 season, you know, that was obviously huge. The, you know, the, the, then they lost two years later to the Patriots. That was Tom Brady's first Super Bowl in New Orleans. I was just actually in New Orleans on vacation with my family and was standing outside of the church on Jackson square where we were doing live shots every night for Fox two and uh, having Patriots fans harass us and, you know, yell obscenities at us and all that crazy stuff. Um, but I think like the two memories that stand out the most to me were, there were two. One, when the Rams clinched the NFC championship, which was at home for the 99 season. So it would have been January, 2020. And I think that was against the, I think that was against the Tampa Bay Bucks. Um, people are better with these details sometimes than me. I just remember interviewing on the field with the confetti flying in the dome, DeMarco Farr, who was, uh, you know, defensive lineman, one of the best personalities, lovable guy. And he had like, his voice was choking up and I could see tears in his eyes. And I was like, holy crap, this is like, this is a moment. Like not just a celebrating win, like, like there, I got choked up. I remember that one. Um, and then for some reason, the other one, I think it was the first ever trip that Fox two sent me on. Uh, you know, I was the number four person on the sports staff when I started there and we had four, we all reported. None of us, I was, I was, I was all, it was all in front of the camera. So I was low man on the totem pole. I mean, I was the last guy they were going to send anywhere and the blues were playing in the playoffs. This was 1999, I think too. And they were playing the Phoenix coyotes at that point they were called the Phoenix Coyotes and they played downtown where the Phoenix Suns played. It was not a good arena for hockey, but um, our top sports guy went to games one and two. Then they came back to St. Louis three and four. Uh, One of our other sports guys went out there for game five. They came back to game six and then there was game seven, which in my opinion, there's nothing more exciting than a game seven in, in the playoffs, especially hockey. And they sent me and I'm pretty sure that was the first ever trip that I went on. And I'd never been sent on a trip like that before. I'd, I'd really never seen much of the country outside of, you know, a little bit of the Midwest and the East Coast. And, and now they're sending me to cover game seven and, and report live on the news and all this stuff. And the Blues go to overtime against the Phoenix Coyotes. It's zero to zero. You score a goal, you move on, you give up the goal, you go home. And they win it one nothing in overtime. And I can still remember um, who scored the goal. It was a guy named Ricard Pearson um, uh, uh, scored the goal, I believe, or Pierre Turgeon was involved in it. Anyway, um, 
we finish, they move on, and they're going to go to Dallas. And they're playing in two days, so the TV station has no – but they, the only way they can get someone there is just send me and my photographer. You guys go to Dallas. So we went to Dallas, covered a couple games there. The Blues ended up losing that series, and then, and then um, Dallas ended up going on to win the Stanley Cup uh, behind Brett Hull. And, um, and they won that the night that I was the night before I was getting married. So I was watching that, like the night before I was getting married. So that memory sticks out to me. Cause it was like, that was my first ever trip. And, and I'm telling you, Alex, like I've spent more time on the road and seen more games and spent time in more, you know, in the most amazing hotels and charter flights and, you know, front row seats and all that. But that was the first. And, um, Nobody's going to remember all that much. The fact that the blues won an overtime game seven in the first round of the playoffs back then. But to me, that was like the first of many, many, many awesome moments. Talk about where you are now with Kansas city Royals. How big of an impact has it had on your career? Everything. And it did so in two or three ways. First way is that really for the first time in my life, I had, regular airtime. I, I always got airtime everywhere I was at, but it was as the fill in anchor or, you know, I might go and report on something, which was great, but now suddenly I go to Kansas city. So my last three years in St. Louis were with the regional Fox sports Midwest. There were three of us that kind of rotated. Um, we had one guy named Pat Paris um, and he's moved on that did most of the pre and post game shows. And then uh, my good friend, Jim Hayes, and I kind of split all the reporting duties. And if Pat was gone, then maybe I would do a show or maybe Jim would do a show. So I, I hosted like five or 10 shows a year. I come to Kansas City and I'm hosting over 300 shows a summer. So, you know, in sports terms, I went from being the backup on the bench who got occasional playing time, or I'd say in, you know, in, in baseball terms, I was like, you know, the middle reliever or something, you know, maybe I got in from time to time. And then I go to Kansas city and I'm starting every day. And so that was the first thing. And I tell people all the time too, like back to the whole, do you get nervous when you do it every day, you gain confidence. You, you believe in yourself. You're not looking over your shoulder, all that type of thing. And so, you know, I've done thousands and thousands of shows. So that was the first thing. Then the second part to it was it's twofold. One, I learned early on, and as you know, the Cardinals are good every year. Uh, you know, on their bad years, they're a 500 team. That's their bad year. On a good year, you know, they're contending for a World Series. On a bad year for the Royals, they're a 100 loss team. And, you know, 90 to 100 losses. And so I go to, I go to Kansas City and I don't know what that looks like. And uh, so the twofold part is that one, I learned very early on that win or lose, you have to have an energy and a passion for that broadcast every day, no matter what, because people are tuning in. And so you have to, it's made me less of a sports fan. It's made it more business for me. It's so I'm not as fun to watch a game with because I analyze, I process, I, I, uh, you know, I, I push aside the emotions maybe out of survival in a long season. I mean, there are some times where we might work 18, 19 days in a row. Uh, let's say of those 19 days, they might lose 15 of 19 in a, in a given year. And you feel like you're on a broken record. 
So you learn how to process that and say, man, they're paying me to come do this every single day and I'm going to bring it. The second side, the twofold part, uh, the second part of the twofold is that the Royals won world championship in 2015. They went from being, you know, the, the cellar dwellers to the Cinderella story and took it to game seven before losing to the Giants in 2014. We come back in 2015, everybody calls them a fluke and they come back and they win the whole thing. And now suddenly everything changes in Kansas City. We suddenly have the number one rated baseball broadcast in the country. Uh, St. Louis was always up there. Uh, some of the, you know, there are just certain markets that, and it's all percentage on the rating. We suddenly for a three-year stretch were either one, two, or three. And now I can't go anywhere in town. And not a bad thing. Um, I could take it or leave it other than the fact that I know that when I go to the grocery store or I'm out in public, people want to talk Royals and you start to understand that we're a major part of people's lives, that we're coming into their living rooms every single day. That's the thing, like going back to surprises, I think that you asked before, I never knew that that, like, maybe you think in your head, Hey, that'd be pretty cool to like one of those years where we were in Arizona. I don't think it was the that same trip. Maybe it was that game seven. I was walking through the arena. Maybe it was that same trip in Arizona with their main um, sports guy out there in Phoenix. And I had met him. I'd never known him in St. Louis, but he had come from St. Louis before I got there. And so we're walking through the stands, like after he'd done a live shot and, and I'm following around with him just because I'd met him or whatever. And like, everybody knew his name. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, Nobody knows who I am, right? And now, like everybody does, not everybody, but it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not that it's, hey, wow, that's so cool. Everybody knows my name. It's that all these people, like they rely on us for not just their news and their updates, but for their entertainment, their distraction and, and troops overseas or someone sitting in a hospital bed. Um, may be looking forward to one thing and one thing only, and that's getting up in the middle of the night in the Middle East at three in the morning to watch a Royals game or, or, or you know, struggling in that hospital bed all day, but at least knowing that for three hours they get to watch us. So that's sort of the deeper level stuff that nobody taught us in school and nobody, you know, you don't really think about that. And so all of that stuff has happened in Kansas City. That, that, that to me has been the game changer in life. I love hearing that story because it's so true. Like you see the people that are on TV every day with the sports and you see them in public and it's like you're a celebrity for them because it's like you never thought you were going to be in that same room. And it shows like the passion you have for that town and how that you are all into bringing a great product with the pregame and post show to the fans of Kansas City Royals. It's, you know, it just, and it's a, like what a privilege, you know, and, and that in some ways it took me a while to think about that because it, I think it's enough just to live your dream. Like how many people get to live their dream? So that was always the very, that was, you know, you talk about, and I mentioned this before, you talk about how did you, you know, how did you push through? How did you rally? Cause I'm living my dream. But now when you start seeing that your dream leads to more, uh, that's, that's the, that's the high level stuff. And so I don't, I try not to ever take that for granted. I, and, and this will sound a little bit cheesy, but 
you know, and I'm lucky enough, at least during non-COVID times, to be the guy that's on the field after the game interviewing the star of the game. A lot of Gatorade bucket dumps. Uh, I'm caught in the line of fire a lot. I get a lot of people that ask me what my dry cleaning bill is. That's all fun. Uh, you know, all-star catcher Salvador Perez, that's his his game, and I'm, I'm off in the target, and we're kind of linked together for that. But whether that happens or doesn't, and, you know, I'm interviewing these guys, and it's piping out over the sound system, not to mention, you know, uh, on to – TVs all over the place. I then have to walk up in this dual role as the reporter and the host. And I don't think anybody else in the country does that. They might double up sometimes, but almost every other market, look at St. Louis. Well, they need a bigger staff because they also have the blues. Mm -hmm. You go up to Minnesota and, you know, if Fox has all the properties, they, they need people for the Timberwolves, the Minnesota Wild and the twins same as in Detroit with the you know Tigers and the Pistons and the um and the Red Wings and some of the college stuff too we don't we don't have any of that so I finish the on-field interview at home I then have to walk up into the stands I've got like little secret paths underneath to get up because I need to get up there quickly because they're waiting for me so they're trying to time it out the guys in the booth are talking and then they go to a commercial and then I'm on the air with my partner and then off to navigate through the fans a little bit and I have to get out to left field where our set is. And this will sound cheesy, but when I'm walking off the field and I know, like I've just finished that interview that there are people watching me as I'm walking and, and like, I'm just, I'm, I'm down there. And I always try to feel my feet walking through the grass. I don't know why at the end of a game, not during the game, during batting practice. And I always just sit there and think, cause it's, you know, it's like any of those stadiums have the greatest manicured lawn that anybody could ever want. Right. And I'm just sitting there thinking you can feel the grass too. And it's like perfect lawn. And you see the ground screw starting to work on tomorrow. Say hi to some guys, wave some people up in the stands, you know, you know, suddenly looking like a governor or something. I don't know. And I'm just like, you feel that grass. And I'm just like, I'm on a freaking major league baseball field. And I just finished doing an interview and now I'm going up to do a post game show. How freaking cool is this? And the reality of it is when you do it day after day after day, it just becomes normal. I don't have any heart pounding or nerves or excitement or, oh my gosh, I'm walking down to the field because I do it every day. But there's just like, I try to allow myself that moment when I'm walking off after a win to say that like they're waiting on me to do this show and I'm walking on a major league baseball field from first base behind home plate down the third base side up the tunnel and out and over that. I don't know what it is about that moment, but it's just like, it's kind of a grounding moment for me. When did you know you were ready to write a book and be an author? <laughs> um, maybe about a year ago. Um, <laughs> the, the, the very short of the story, I'll try to be short. And I know I'm long on most of them is that I, and this was actually another breakthrough, but about four years ago, I'd have my off seasons off. And that wasn't the case in St. Louis because I did all the sports, but I, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the games here. And so I'm off and I do a random college game here and there that I mentioned before, but I, I was pretty unfulfilled in the off season. Not that I wanted to be working seven days a week, but I was unfulfilled. And, and I, I remember a buddy of mine um, asked me, you know, what have you been up to? I said, oh, this, this, this. And I spoke to some group the other day, the, lawn care and golf course management association they they gave me a little bit of money to come do a little motivational talk for them 
And he looks at me and he goes, you know, you could build a business out of that. And I said, I could do what? He said, oh, yeah, you could. And I, like, I don't know how the business world worked. I've only lived in the sports world. I never thought about that before. I didn't think about conventions and associations and all that. So, so I investigated a little bit and I started to, um, so that, you know, I think this could be something. I got all this experience in sports and all these stories and culture and leadership and teamwork and successes and failures and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I hire a coach to learn about how to be a better public speaker, not a TV guy and uh, hire a consultant to write material. And everybody told me, everyone told me, if you're a speaker, you have to write a book. So I meet with a woman who I was told could help me ghost write a book. And she hears my story and she goes, you're not ready to write a book. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Like I would have been offended if not for the fact that that's exactly what I was thinking. She says, why don't you start a podcast instead? I said, how come? And she said, well, one, you know how to interview people. You do it for a living. Two, it'll give you a chance. If you make it a non-sports podcast, it'll give you a chance to meet people in the business world. Three, it'll give you a chance to, to develop some content for speaking and for a book. And I thought, all right, yeah, sure. So I started that in November of 2017. Suddenly my speeches started incorporating, uh, you know, lessons learned from CEOs and entrepreneurs. And somewhere about a year ago, I said, you know what? Now I know what I want to write about. Because everything I do, I tie into baseball. And, you know, I try to tell people all the time, the book's not a baseball book. The speech isn't a baseball speech. The podcast isn't a baseball podcast. However, if you enjoy baseball, there'll be a lot of cool, you know, behind the scenes, quote unquote, inside baseball stuff. But if you hate baseball, you're going to learn lessons. And, and so I, um, early on, I had asked every one of my guests three baseball themed questions. I still do. In your career, what's the biggest home run you've hit professionally? So very similar to the question, you know, that, that you asked me about a breakthrough moment, say. Two, what's the biggest swing and miss you've taken and what did you learn from it? And three, what is small ball? What are the little things that add up to the big things? We saw the Royals win not being a home run hitting team, but being a, a team that, that, that mastered defense and the sacrifice and stolen bases, and they won. And to me, in many ways, it was meant to be a culture question. Like, what are the what are the little unseen things that matter? And the answers to that were so fascinating that it just dawned on me a year plus ago. What if I write a book about small ball, the little things that add up to the home runs in business, baseball and life? And when the pandemic hit and I'm out of work for four months, I thought, let's let's get going. Let's let's do this thing. And, um, and I wrote it and, um, it's, it's as much, I think as a, a life book as it is a, a sports book. When someone is going to read it or reading that book, are they, are you trying to have them answer those three questions for themselves? No, you know, and I, I, I laid off of the home run and the, and the swing and miss question, the, the small ball question to me ended up being the most, the one that led to the most interesting answers or the, the, the most variety of answers. And so what I did, and I didn't know this, it's sort of the process has kind of evolved. I'd never written a book before. And, um, you know, I just started kind of deciding on 
topics and stories, put all on a feature. And I got all these baseball stories. Now I got all these business stories and, and big time superstars to under the radar role players in both baseball and business. And somewhat late in the process, like the book came out in December of 20. And I think probably around October, the, the light bulb went off. I knew the topics. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to write about small ball topics, just some of the most common themes that, that came up, whether it be in my life or all the people I've interviewed, anything from how to build trust, uh, how to find your purpose, the importance of positive energy, the significance of mentorship and passing on what you know, uh, on and on and on. So I had all these topics. And I thought, well, when do I write the baseball story? When do I write the business story? And that's when the light bulb went off and I said, what if I write the chapters, each chapter is a topic and each chapter is like the inning of a baseball game. So now I can have the top of the inning and the bottom of the inning. So when I write in uh, chapter one about purpose, there's a top of the first and the bottom of the first. And the top of the first very much relates to learn, uh, learning about, you know, it's not about the wins and losses and visiting the troops overseas on a USO trip uh, and broadcasting live there. And, uh, and so these type of things. And then I have more than nine topics. So I went extra innings and <laughs> I, I did a rain delay in there. And I did a, um, you know, a little deal about extra innings. And so it ended up being 13 topics. And the cool part about it, I sort of wrote it with myself in mind in the sense that I have my attention span, like a lot of people, isn't very good. I don't sit still very well. Uh, I'm all over the place. And I thought if I could just write these half chapters, top half, bottom half, in three to five pages, that basically every three to five pages, someone's going to get a story and a lesson learned. And they can pick it up today and read three or five pages and pick it up again in two weeks or tomorrow or whatever it is and just pick up or open up to wherever they want. And, um, and so that's kind of how it came up. And, and now it's, uh, it's weird. Now, now the name author is, is uh, the word author is next to my name, which is not something I ever really expected, but it's something that I knew you know, four years ago that I needed to do. And, and the, the last thing I'll say in terms of this answer is I, I'm glad that the, that the, like the book might've helped accelerate my speaking career and all kinds of other opportunities sooner if I'd done or quicker, if I'd done it sooner. But I think there's a lesson to be learned too about doing it when you're ready versus doing it just because you're supposed to do it and forcing the issue. I was fully confident when the time came to write last year that the time was right. Doesn't mean I knew all of what I was doing. First time author, self-publishing, but I knew that I was, it was the right time. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a bigger picture guy now. I, I mean, I, I have as much joy getting on the stage or in the last year uh, speaking to groups anywhere from 10 people to as many, I've done as many as 750, I think, virtually. And 
You know, earlier today, I did a online book club with executives and, you know, one week it might be a workshop with a group and coaching sessions. And so, you know, in the very sort of general terms, like I don't have a specific goal that says, okay, I want to move to this market because I'm happy where I'm at, or I want to, you know, be this or that. Now I just want to keep growing this business while enjoying still living my dream. And I, I, I just know that I have this ability now to potentially get in front of an audience on any given day and have somebody, you know, you talked about before, like just learning one thing. I potentially have the chance anytime I speak to a group where somebody walks away and they're motivated to change something or to be better at something, to be a better teammate, to be a better leader, to be a better family member, whatever it is, um, through storytelling and all these experiences. So now when I go to the ballpark every day, Alex, I have a job to do. I always have. But it's made me a better reporter because I'm more inquisitive now because I'm sitting there thinking about what could I learn about so-and-so ball player that could potentially motivate someone else? How do you do what you do? Uh, why do you do what you do? I'm not talking about like, why did you steal second base? But, you know, what type of preparation went into stealing second base? How much work did you put in behind the scenes? And now I could share that with others and potentially motivate people. And so it, it just, it's given me more purpose. I talked about purpose before. It's given me a greater purpose so that every day that I go to the ballpark, I know that it's bigger than just that game or, or just being on TV. And that was enough to be able to, you know, like we talked about before coming to people's living rooms. So, you know, what does the future look like? Just keep growing this, seeing where it's going. And I mentioned this before is, is just enjoying the journey and learning from it every single day. That's, I know that's so, I don't know if it's too generic or not, or, or maybe it's just too big picture or whatever. It's not a specific number, a goal or whatever it is. Of course I want to be successful, but I, I just think that, you know, I, 26 years in TV, like that's crazy. And so I guess that should be enough, but now it's like, I got all of this knowledge and all these experiences and all this access to not just athletes, but high level CEOs that'll not only welcome me into their office for lunch, but might even pick my brain on some things. Uh, I, I think I have a responsibility to share that with others. So that, it's just, it's a very empowering thing. See, the best part of that question is there's no right answer. Everyone has that journey yeah. that they're on yeah. and they're going to go on it. And sometimes people know what they want to do in five years. And some people are just going day by day, just enjoying yeah. life as we should be. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's powerful too. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I believe this all the time too. And I think it's true for all of us. Like what, and I think all of like the, you know, the self-help meditation people, like I'm not good at that cause I'm too antsy. I try, but you know, like they, they, they say like you should wake up in the morning and think about what you want to accomplish or what your goals are and then go to bed and you know, what are you grateful for? What did you do today? But I believe in that stuff. I mean, I, I just, I'm just not disciplined enough, but to the point where I, I just feel like, can I do something today 
that when I go to bed, I can say, that was, that was good. That was cool. And it might be something as simple as just putting a smile on someone's face. You know, we say all the time in baseball that a guy might be 0 for 4 with four strikeouts or it might be in an 0 for 20 slump. But he made a great defensive play. He helped his team. Or a guy hasn't played for three weeks, but he's been the most unbelievable teammate on the bench supporting his guys on the top step and cheering them on. That, that to me, is what we all should be looking to do every single day. And, and so I know I have that ability, even on the worst of days. And guess what? I could be living my dream and doing all this stuff. I have crappy days, too. I mean, we all do. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give someone to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Well, first and foremost, I would say that you can never rise to the challenge alone. It always involves people. And I wrote in my book about uh, a man by the name of David Glass, who passed away in January of 2020. So what, what ended up being a very crappy, bad year, um, started off before the pandemic with, with the longtime owner of the Kansas City Royals and former chief executive officer of Walmart. Um, and he sold the team uh, around September of, of 2019, and he passed away in January of 2020. And he always said to me, everything you do, it's about people. And I never heard him say I or me. It was always about everyone else. He said, you do everything in life through people. Without other people, you'd be nothing. And so this is a guy that was worth a billion dollars. So I would say, first and foremost, you rise to the challenge by trusting or building trust with those around you, by building relationships, by planting seeds. And, and that is true in television, in sports, in any profession. And I think that you can overcome adversity. We talked about that. And, and you can, you can really achieve anything if you are a couple of things, one uh, genuine or authentic with people, relying on people, being vulnerable with people, being helpful for, with people. Um, and, and I think too, always just having a healthy dose of curiosity. I talked before about not knowing what you don't know or being willing to learn more. When you're curious and you're constantly looking for more, I, I think that you will rise to the occasion because you're constantly seeking more answers and, and trying to better yourself and others around you. So I, I think that that is advice, I believe, that applies to anyone in any walk of life. Joel, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We're excited to see what the future looks like for you, and we're excited to see you on our TV screens every day. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Great questions, and I enjoyed the conversation. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.